0: Uh, stir my soul the most with their passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ and their love of souls and serving the Lord are Paul Wolf and Russ White and next week Russ will be here and so we are very blessed with two very special times as our missionaries are with us. And we have a joke uh, next week for Russ. Uh, His brother Joel was here, and you recall, Joel said one uh, Joel White missionary card is worth two Russ White missionary cards. And so uh, I've been waiting for about a month now to be able to tell that joke, so uh, I will have a chance to tell it next week as well. Paul mentioned Lake Ellen this morning, and I just want to mention to you that I will be at Lake Ellen next week as the uh, as the camp pastor for uh, family camp. Uh, Seth and Beth White will, Seth and Beth uh, uh, Wexstrom uh, will be there next week. And uh, just to really covet your prayers, I'll be speaking on the Holy Spirit all week. And so, just uh, uh, would ask that you would pray for me and the ministry that will take place next week. Well, I want to ask you this morning what your reaction to uh, this particular question is. And uh, the question is, is there life after death? Now, I think for most of us, we would say, well, this is is a no-brainer. Of course, there's life after death. The Bible is very, very clear about that. But do you know some of the greatest minds that uh, have ever existed in our times have said emphatically, no. For example, the astronomer Carl Sagan, who was host of the well-watched program Cosmos, often said in his introduction to that program, and you probably know these words, the Cosmos is all that ever was, and all that ever will be, period. Uh, Albert Einstein, the great uh, physicist and scientist, said this, Neither can I believe the individual survives death, though feeble souls harbor such thoughts through fear or religious egotism. And then Sigmund Freud, the great psychologist, said this, Belief that death is the door to a better life is the oldest, strongest, and most insistent wish of mankind. Did you know even some Bible students said no? Uh, Take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 12. We are continuing in our series, uh, Living in the Shadow of the Cross, in the second half of Mark's Gospel. I want you to notice a group of Bible students who had the same response to this question. Mark chapter 12 and uh, verse 13 in your chair Bible. It's about page 1008 or so. Turn there with me and notice. And they sent to him some Sadducees who came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question. Now, who were these Sadducees who studied the Bible and said there's no such thing as an afterlife? Well, they were the aristocratic party of the Jews. They were wealthy, they were influential, they cooperated with the Romans, and they had some very strange views. They said the only scripture were the first five books of Moses. So if they were translating the Old Testament, they would say, you stop with those five books. They did not believe in the supernatural. Uh, We might call them the, the liberals of their day. They said there were no angels, no spirits, no life after death, no judgment, no rewards, no penalties. And naturally... No resurrection of the body. And I want you to notice their question. Follow along with me in verse 19. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, if there could be such a thing as a resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven all had her as a wife. You want to know what they were doing? They were making fun of the issue of life after death. They were saying if there is such a thing as resurrection, imagine the confusion in heaven. She's my wife. No, she's my wife. You're both wrong. She's my wife. How ridiculous. How ridiculous. Now, the Sadducees were so smug, they thought they had stumped Jesus. Evidently, they had used this story many times before, and nobody had an answer for them. By the way, one day, Carl Sagan was talking with a professional woman by the name of Joan Campbell. And this is what Carl Sagan said to her. He said, you're so smart, why do you believe in God? She responded, you're so smart, why don't you believe in God? Now that's the way to give it back, isn't it? That's the way to give it back. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He did not think the story was very funny. In fact, their silly argument led to some very serious error. Twice Jesus says, you are wrong. In fact, the second time he says, you are quite wrong. Like the person who turned the tables on Carl Sagan, Jesus the Master was going to undress these wise guys. Are you ready for that this morning? Let's follow along. As the Master teacher... Answers two of life's most important questions. This morning, I want to bring a message entitled, What Jesus Has to Say About Life After Death. And the very first question that he is going to answer for us is this one, is there life after death? Let's take a moment, shall we, and pray together. Father, perhaps no more important issue do we need clarity on than is there life beyond the grave. And we're thankful that the authoritative teacher, our wonderful Savior, said, I'm the only one that has come down from heaven. I'm the only one who is going back to heaven before my followers will follow me And on the basis of my unique person as the Son of God who was sent into the world and has returned to the Father, I teach authoritatively on all spiritual matters. Thank you for his amazing teaching of us today. For Jesus' sake, amen. I want you to notice how Jesus responds to this question. Verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Drop down to verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying... I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, What is interesting about this is the Sadducees taught that resurrection was absent from the first five books of Moses. They said, if you will study those books... You will not find anything about resurrection or the afterlife. So you know what Jesus does? He goes to their books, doesn't he? And he appeals to Exodus 3, 1-6 and the burning bush incident. Now, I just want to say to you, this is a brilliant strategy. This is a brilliant strategy. I never tire of telling you what a brilliant teacher Jesus is. We have a wonderful Savior. We have a wonderful Savior. And so what Jesus does is He takes their own books to show them how wrong they are. And you remember what God said to Moses at the burning bush. Let's read it together. Moreover, He said, I am the God of thy Father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, you know what Jesus does here? He uses this text to teach that there will indeed be a resurrection and there is life after death. Let's notice how he teaches this, all right? First of all, he proved life after death grammatically. Now, you know that grammar is the study of language, and we've just heard how difficult it is to go from one language to the other. Grammar is how words relate together in a sentence to convey meaning. And Jesus noticed very clearly that God did not say, I was the God of the patriarchs, but I what? I am. The living God, He is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. What does that mean? At the very moment that God said this, at the burning bush, though the patriarchs had been dead for hundreds of years, they were still alive. Because the living God was their God In the afterlife. Jesus proved it grammatically. By the way, the Bible is so precise, it is true right down to the very grammar. That's the inerrant Bible that we have. Jesus believed in an inerrant Bible. Number two, Jesus proved life after death biologically. Uh, My daughter is a, a biology student at NMU, and biology is the study of life, natural life, and human life. Now, for Jewish people, in the Hebrew mind, a person was a unity. With a material part, a body, and an immaterial part, a soul and spirit. And according to the Hebrew way of thinking, one is incomplete without the other. So as one pastor has very well said, our bodies are a part of who we are. Now, we tend to fall into the error of making the soul more important than the body, don't we? We we tend to do that. Uh, For example, when we're trying to explain to a child what the soul is, We will say to this child, the soul is the real you down inside. Now we understand what we're trying to do, but what's happening there is we are making the soul more important than the body. In fact, we often will call the body a shell, don't we? We'll refer to our body as just a shell. Um, I know a pastor who said, you know, the body's just a shell. He said, when I die, the nut will be gone. (laughs) Take a while to catch up to that, all right? But I want you to notice here that by using the names Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God was speaking of the whole person. What God was saying is, uh, I am the God of the whole person, body and soul. So, you know what this means? If the soul was still alive, the body's got to be resurrected. The whole person will experience eternal life. So Jesus proved life after death biologically. He also proved it theologically. Did you notice four times, three times, he said, I'm the God of. I'm the God of. I'm the God of you know that in each relationship with the patriarchs, Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, that God repeated the Abrahamic covenant with them. When he says, I'm the God of the patriarchs, what he means is, I'm in covenant relationship with them, and God, as a covenant God with his people, was their redeemer and their protector. Now, I want you to think about this. Resurrection, then, is a logical extension of God's covenant with His people for God cannot let death be final and be faithful to His covenant, right? He cannot be. If death is final, then God is not faithful to His promises. Do you know both Abraham and Moses understood this? How much of the promised land did Abraham own when he died? He owned a grave. He owned a cemetery plot. How much of the promised land did Moses put his feet on? Zero. Moses was disqualified from entering into the promised land they all, Both of them died before they ever experienced any of God's earthly promises. But you know what? Death did not bother them. It didn't bother them at all. Because they died in faith looking forward to a heavenly city built by God. They knew God's promises demanded eternal life. In a heavenly kingdom. Now what an incredible thing. Out of one verse, Jesus in an amazing way says there must be life after death and there must be resurrection. In 400 BC, the renowned philosopher Socrates was sentenced to death. He had fallen out of favor with the authorities, and he was executed by poisoning. You may know the story, after drinking the poison hemlock, Socrates, the great philosopher, lay down to die, and his friends gathered around him, and they said, shall we live again? Socrates' response was, I hope so. But no man can know. And then Socrates died, and he's never been heard from again. 433 years later, another great teacher walked the earth. He too was sentenced to die. People asked him the very same question, Shall we live again? He said, Grammatically? Yes. Biologically? Yes. Theologically? Yes. They executed him by crucifixion. They laid him in a tomb. Three days later he rose again, and he said, I told you so. And it's because I live that you too shall live. And on the authoritative word of the risen Savior, The answer to the question, is there life after death, is a resounding yes. Now the question that we have is, okay, if there's life after death, then what is it like? What is it like? And the Bible has some very, very wonderful things to say about this. In fact, Jesus enter into a new type of existence as believers after our death. Did you notice what Jesus said in verse 24? Look at that. Is this not the reason you are wrong because you neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God? And then notice verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. But are like angels in heaven. Did you notice here that Jesus did not say that we become angels? He said we become what? Like angels. That's very important. Did you hear, by the way, about the two ladies that were talking about their jobs? And the one asked the other, How's your boss? And she said, oh, he's an angel. And the other woman replied, well, you're you're lucky my boss is still alive. (laughs) And that's a wives' tale, isn't it? That we become angels. That comes from a famous movie, doesn't it? No, what Jesus meant was this. Our resurrection bodies will be similar to angels. The point is that we are going to experience a new existence. We are immortal like the angels are. We will be like them. So that ranges a a, a whole lot of questions. Will we have wings? Will we recognize each other? Will we be married? Or will we be sexless? And the Bible gives us some wonderful answers to some of these questions. And so let me share some of the answers with the second question here. Because the New Testament fleshes out what Jesus talked about here when he said, we will have a new type of existence. We will be immortal like the angels are immortal. Let's look at some of the answers to this question, okay? First of all, I want you to notice that the Bible teaches us that believers will have a spiritual body. In 1 Corinthians 15.50, it says, "...flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven." All of us know that Jesus had a body that could materialize through doors. One second he was not there. In the next moment, he was there. What the Bible is teaching us is this. When we receive our spiritual bodies... It will not be limited by space and by time. Do you know what Pastor Kent Hughes said, who used to pastor the College Avenue Church in Wheaton? He said, I think in heaven we will be able to move around with the speed of thought. We will be in one place, we want to be in another place because we have a spiritual body that is not limited by space and time. We'll be able to move that quickly. Now, I'm not sure if Pastor Kent Hughes is right on that, but I do know this, our immortal existence will not be limited by space nor time. Aren't those the two things that constantly interrupt our relationships here? What a wonderful thing that will be. Uh, Number two, believers will be recognizable. Okay? Uh, One of the questions that we have is, will we know each other in heaven? And I, like what one pastor has said, I know you now, and I'm not going to be a bigger fool in heaven than I am now. Right? But there will be a difference. Jesus was not always recognized at first, was he? The spiritual body was different in many ways. But when Jesus said to Mary Magdalene, Mary, did she know him? Yes, Yes, she did. And we will know each other in heaven. There's no question about that. I'll have a much longer time to visit with my friend Paul and Robina and to find out all about what went on in Papua New Guinea. We will know each other. Thirdly, believers will have their individuality preserved. I will have all in heaven that makes me properly me. So when you see me, I will be all that makes Brian, Brian, but more than that, I will be the best me that I can be. I will be the Brian God intended me to be that I am often not in this life. Uh, somebody went to the renowned pastor of Dallas, Texas, W. Chriswell, and they said, will we know each other when we get to heaven? You know what he said? He said, we won't really know each other until we get to heaven. You know what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13? Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Think about what that means. I will know my wife Ellen to a depth I could not possibly know her now. I have learned many things in our 27 years of marriage about my wife. I've learned new things about her, understood her in a greater way, and her me. But I will not really know her to the depth possible until we both are in heaven. What an amazing thing. Next. Believers will be one happy family. Did you notice here that Jesus says that we will be, in verse 24, like the angels? Now, you know what that means? There will be no marriage relationships. This is where we have to be careful. Sometimes when our parents die, we say, oh, you know, they're finally back together again in heaven. And we think of them as being married in heaven like they were married here on earth. And Jesus is teaching us, no, that's not the way it's going to be There are not going to be exclusive relationships in heaven like there are here on earth that we have in marriage. And you say, why is that going to be? Well, I think part of the answer is this. Our love in heaven will be so perfected that we will not have exclusive relationships like we have in marriage because we will have a depth and purity of love with all the believers in heaven and we will be like one great big happy family as we are together in the presence of the Lord. By the way, isn't that the sad part here? Love here is so imperfect, isn't it, that we often struggle with broken relationships. I knew two sisters raised in the same family, so bitter at one another that when the one sister had a new baby, the other sister in her bitterness refused to even acknowledge the new baby. That's what relationships on earth often descend to. But the Bible is saying to us that in heaven our love will be so pure, so deep, so real, we will all love each other to an equal depth and we will enjoy a family like we have never known before. What an incredible thing. Finally, The Bible teaches us that believers will have no death. Angels do not die, do they? And so there will be no more separation, there will be no more death, there will be no more pain of loss, but we will forever live in an eternal existence with our Savior, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all the angels, all the believers of all time Never ever to experience death or separation again. Isn't that an amazing thing? When my mother died, my, my father uh, missed her very, very greatly. They had been together for 62 years as a married couple. They dated four years, so they had been together 66 years. He said to me, Brian, he said, You can't know what it's like. He said, You just can't understand what it's like to lose your spouse until it actually happens. And he would sit for lunch, and he would wonder, you know, uh, what's Roma thinking? Is she aware that I'm having lunch? And, and when we would have devotions by himself, and they used to have it together, he would wonder, you know, is Roma thinking about me? And he searched the Scriptures, and he said, Brian, there's not a whole lot about what's going on in heaven. Not a lot of detail. But aren't you glad there's enough detail for us? Aren't you glad? What amazing detail for us. We will have a spiritual body. We're going to be recognizable. We're going to have our individuality preserved. We will be one happy family and there will be no more death. That's enough. That's enough for all of us. Some of you may remember the film, Field of Dreams. Remember the famous line of Field of Dreams? Okay, if you didn't remember, if you build it, they will come. You know what that film was about? It was about the longing that we all have for a place where dreams come true. The main character in the film, Kevin Costner, is a man by the name of Ray. And he longed for a renewed relationship with his father, who died very, very young. And Ray wanted to spend time again together. He wanted to get to know his dad, enjoy him. He wanted to have the pain of the past erased. And heaven is that place. That's the whole point of this movie. Heaven is that place where the pain of the past is erased in a, in a new world and a new life. Do you know what is sad about this? An interviewer after Field of Dreams, and probably many of us have seen the movie, asked Kevin Costner if he believed in heaven. This is what he said. I desperately want to. I mean, I really want to believe that a part of me will continue on after this life and that there's more to me and to this life than just what's here on earth. Yes, I want to believe. And when I read that, you know what I thought? Kevin, if you want to. Why then don't you? Jesus proved it. He rose again to secure it. He told us what it would be like. And He is building it right now. Why not believe in the one and receive the one who will make it happen, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow together, shall we? just a moment we are going to gather around the Lord's table. And as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, maybe you are here today and you are uncertain about your eternal destiny. Maybe you would say, if I were to die today... I'm not sure where I would wake up. As a teenager, I wrestled with this, and I often went to bed at night with tears in my eyes because I was afraid. If I died in the night in my room, I was not sure where I would wake up the next morning. And today, if you are not sure that you belong to Jesus Christ and that His life, has been exchanged for your life, that he has forgiven your sins and that he has given you a new life that has begun now and someday will find its culmination in eternal heaven. You can turn to him now. You can say something like this, Lord Jesus, I know who I am. And I know that in your sight I'm a sinner. But I believe who you are. I believe that you're the Son of God. That you came into this world. That you not only are the authoritative teacher sent from God, but you died on the cross for my sins and you rose again that I might have eternal life. You may say from your heart something like this, Lord Jesus, I'm repenting. I'm turning from my own way and I'm turning to You. Come into my heart and be my Savior. Come into my life and be my Lord. Forgive me of all of my sins. Give to me the gift of eternal life. Make me a child of God. And now, Lord, believing that You are true to your promises and will save all who call upon the name of the Lord. God now helping me, I will follow you with all of my heart. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving me. Father, I thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit of God who can take the things of Christ, make them real unto us, and draw us into the most amazing, life-transforming relationship anyone could ever have. Accomplish that today in the lives of men, women, boys, and girls, for Jesus' sake.